Good evening, my darlings, and welcome to Marley's Ghosts. It's time for another Dreadtime story. Now get yourselves all tucked in. Ready? Good. Let's begin. Tonight's story is From the Dead by E. Nesbitt. But true or not true, your brother is a scoundrel. No man, no decent man, tells such things. But he did not tell me. How dare you suppose it? I found the letter in his desk, and she being my friend and you being her lover, I never thought there could be any harm in my reading her letter to my brother. Give me back the letter. I was a fool to tell you. Ida Helmet held out her hand for the letter. Not yet, I said, and I went to the window. The dull red of a London sunset burned on the paper. As I read in the quaint, dainty handwriting I knew so well and had kissed so often. Dear, I do love you, but it's impossible. I must marry Arthur. My honor is engaged. If he would only set me free, but he never will. He loves me so foolishly. But as for me, it is you I love, body, soul, and spirit. There was no one in my heart but you. I think of you all day, and I dream of you all night. And we must part. And that is the way of the world. Goodbye. Yours, 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 Elviry. I had seen the handwriting, indeed, often enough. But the passion written there was new to me, that I had not seen. I turned from the window wearily. My sitting room looked strange to me. There were my books, my reading lamp, my untasted dinner still on the table, as I had left it when I rose to assemble my surprise at Ida Helmet's visit. Ida Helmet, who now sat in my easy chair, looking at me quietly. Well. Do you give me no thanks? You put a knife to my heart and then ask for thanks? Pardon me, she said, throwing up her chin. I have done nothing but show you the truth. For that one should expect no gratitude? May I ask, out of mere curiosity, what you intend to do? Your brother will tell you. She rose suddenly, pale to the lips. You will not tell my brother, she began. That you have read his private letters? Certainly not. She came towards me, her gold hair flaming in the sunset light. Why are you so angry with me? she said. Be reasonable. What else could I do? I don't know. Would it have been right not to tell you? I don't know. I only know that you've put the sun out and I haven't got used to the dark yet. Believe me, she said, coming still nearer to me and laying her hands in the lightest touch on my shoulders. Believe me, she never loved you. There was a softness in her tone that irritated and stimulated me. I moved gently back and her hands fell to her sides. 
I beg your pardon, I said. I have behaved very badly. You were quite right to come, and I am not ungrateful. Will you post a letter for me? I sat down and wrote. I give you back your freedom, the only gift of mine that can please you now, Arthur. I held out the sheet to Miss Helmet, and when she glanced at it, I sealed, stamped, and addressed it. Goodbye, I said then, and gave her the letter. As the door closed behind her, I sank into my chair, and I am not ashamed to say that I cried like a child or a fool over my lost plaything. The little dark-haired woman who loved someone else with body, soul, and spirit. I did not hear the door open or any foot on the floor, and therefore I started when a voice behind me said, Are you very unhappy? Oh, Arthur, don't think I am not sorry for you. I don't want anyone to be sorry for me, Miss Helmet, I said. She was silent for a moment. Then, with a quick, sudden, gentle movement, she leaned down and kissed my forehead, and I heard the door close softly. Then I knew that the beautiful Miss Helmet loved me. At first that thought only fleeted by, a light cloud against gray sky. But the next day reason awoke and said, was Miss Helmet speaking the truth? Was it possible? I determined to see Elviry to know from her own lips whether by happy fortune this blow came, not from her, but from a woman in whom love might have killed honesty. I walked from Hampstead to Gower Street. As I trod its long length, I saw a figure in pink come out of one of the houses. It was Elviry. She walked in front of me to the corner of Store Street. There she met Oscar Helmut. They turned and met me face to face, and I saw all I needed to see. They loved each other. Ida Helmut had spoken the truth. I bowed and passed on. Before six months were gone, they were married, and before a year was over, I had married Ida Helmut. What did it, I don't know whether it was remorse for having, even for a half a day, dreamed that she could be so base as to forge a lie to gain a lover, or whether it was her beauty, or the sweet flattery of the preferences of a woman who had half her acquaintances at her feet, I don't know. Anyhow, my thoughts turned to her as to the natural home. My heart, too, took that road, and before very long I loved her as I had never loved Elviry. Let no one doubt that I loved her, as I shall never love again, please God. There never was anyone like her. She was brave and beautiful, witty and wise, and beyond all measure adorable. She was the only woman in the world. There was a frankness, a largeness of heart about her that made all other women seem small and contemptible. She loved me, and I worshipped her. I married her. I stayed with her for three golden weeks, and then I left her. Why? Because she told me the truth. It was one night, late. We had sat up all evening in the veranda of our seaside lodging, watching the moonlight on the water and listening to the soft sound of the sea on the sand. I had never been so happy.
I never shall be happy any more, I hope. Heart's heart, she said, leaning her gold head against my shoulder. How much do you love me? How much? Yes, how much? I want to know what place it is I hold in your heart. Am I more to you than anyone else? My love! More than yourself? More than my life! I believe you, she said. Then she drew a long breath and took my hand in hers. It can make no difference. Nothing in heaven or earth can come between us now. Nothing, I said. But, my sweet wife, what is it? For she was deathly pale. I must tell you, she said. I cannot hide anything from you now, because I am yours. Body, soul, and spirit. The phrase was an echo that stung me. The moonlight shone on her gold hair, her warm, soft gold hair on her pale face. Arthur, she said, you remember my coming to you at Hampstead with that letter? Yes, my sweet, and I remember how you, Arthur, she spoke fast and low. Arthur, that letter was a forgery. She never wrote it. She stopped, for I had risen, and flung her hands from me, and stood looking at her. God help me! I thought it was anger at the lie I felt. I know now it was only wounded vanity that smarted in me, that I should have been tricked, that I should have been deceived, that I should have been led to make a fool of myself, that I should have married the woman who had befooled me. At that moment, she was no longer my wife. She was no longer the wife I adored. She was only a woman who had forged a letter and tricked me into marrying her. I spoke. I denounced her. I said I would never speak to her again. I felt it was rather credible in me to be so angry. I said, I would have no more to do with a liar and a forger. I don't know whether I expected her to creep to my knees and implore forgiveness. I think I had some vague idea that I could by and by consent with dignity to forgive and forget. I did not mean what I said. No, no, I did not mean a word of it. While I was saying it, I was longing for her to weep and fall at my feet that I might raise her and hold her in my arms again. But she did not fall at my feet. She stood quietly looking at me. Arthur, she said as I paused for breath, let me explain. She, I... There is nothing to explain, I said hotly, still with that foolish sense of there being something rather noble in my indignation, as one feels when one calls oneself a miserable sinner. You are a liar and a forger, and that is enough for me. I will never speak to you again. You have wrecked my life. Do you mean that? She said, interrupting me and leaning forward to look at me. Tears lay on her cheeks but she was not crying now. I hesitated. I longed to take her in my arms and say, lay your head here, my darling, and cry here and know how I love you. But instead I kept silent. Do you mean it? She persisted. 
Then she put her hand on my arm. I longed to clasp it and draw her to me. Instead, I shook it off and said, Mean it? Yes, of course I mean it. Don't touch me, please. You have ruined my life. She turned away without a word, went into our room and shut the door. I longed to follow her, to tell her that if there was anything to forgive, I forgave it. Instead, I went out on the beach and walked away under the cliffs. The moonlight and the solitude, however, presently brought me to a better mind. Whatever she had done had been for the love of me. I knew that. I would go home and tell her so. Tell her that whatever she had done, she was my dearest life, my heart's one treasure. True, my ideal of her was shattered. But, even as she was, what was the whole world of women compared to her? I hurried back, put my resentment and evil temper... I had walked far, and the way back was very long. I had been parted from her for three hours by the time I opened the door of the little house where we lodged. The house was dark and very still. I slipped off my shoes and crept up in the narrow stairs and opened the door of our room quite softly. Perhaps she had cried herself to sleep, and I would lean over her and waken her with my kisses and beg her to forgive me. Yes, it had come to that now. I went into the room. I went towards the bed. She was not there. She was not in the room. As one glance showed me, she was not in the house, as I knew in two minutes. When I had wasted a priceless hour searching in the town for her, I found a note on the dressing table. Goodbye. Make the best of what is left of your life. I will spoil it no more. She was gone. Utterly gone. I rushed to the town by the earliest morning train, only to find that her people knew nothing of her. Advertisement failed. Only a tramp said he had met a white lady on the cliff, and a fisherman brought me a handkerchief marked with her name that he had found on the beach. I searched the country far and wide, but I had to go back to London at last, and the months went by. I won't say much about those months, because even the memory of that suffering turns me faint and sick at the heart. The police and detectives and the press failed me utterly. Her friends could not help me, and were, moreover, wildly indignant with me, especially her brother— now living very happily with my first love. I don't know how I got through those long weeks and months. I tried to write. I tried to read. I tried to live the life of a reasonable human being. But it was impossible. I could not endure the companionship of my kind. Day and night I almost saw her face, almost heard her voice. I took long walks in the country, and her figure was always just around the next turn of the road, in the next glade of the woods, but I never quite saw her, never quite heard her. I believe I was not altogether sane at that time. At last, one morning as I was setting out for one of those long walks that had no goal but weariness, I met a telegraph boy 
and took the red envelope from his hand. On the pink paper inside was written, Come to me at once. I am dying. You must come. Ida, Appenshaw Farm, Mellor, Derbyshire. There was a train at twelve to Marple, the nearest station. I took it. I tell you, there are some things that cannot be written about. My life for those long months was one of them. That journey was another. What had her life been for those months? That question troubled me as one is troubled in every nerve at the sight of a surgical operation or a wound inflicted on a being dear to one. But the overmastering sensation was joy, intense, unspeakable joy. She was alive. I should see her again. I took out the telegram and looked at it. I am dying. I simply did not believe it. She could not die till she had seen me. And if she had lived all those months without me, she could live now. When I was with her again, when she knew of the hell I had endured apart from her and the heaven of our meeting, she must live. I would not let her die. There was a long drive over bleak hills, dark, jolting, infinitely wearisome. At last we stopped before a long, low building where one of two lights gleamed faintly. I sprang out. The door opened. A blaze of light made me blink and draw back. A woman was standing in the doorway. Art thee Arthur Mash? she said. Yes. Then thou art late. She's dead. I went into the house, walked to the fire and held up my hands to it mechanically, for though the night was May, I was cold to the bone. There were some folks standing around the fire and lights flickering. Then an old woman came forward with the northern instinct of hospitality. Thou art tired, she said, and mazed like. Have a sup of tea. I burst out laughing. It was too funny. I had traveled two hundred miles to see her, and she was dead. And they offered me tea? They drew back from me as if I was a wild beast, but I could not stop laughing. Then a hand was laid on my shoulder, and someone led me into a dark room, lighted a lamp, set me in a chair, and sat down opposite me. It was a bare parlor coldly furnished with rush chairs and much polished tables and presses. I caught my breath and grew suddenly grave and looked at the woman who sat opposite me. I was Miss Ida's nurse, she said, and she told me to send for you. Who are you? Her husband. The woman looked at me with hard eyes where intense surprise struggled with resentment. Then may God forgive you, she said. What you've done, I don't know. But it'll be hard work forgiving you, even for him. Tell me, I said, my wife. Tell you? The bitter contempt in the woman's tone did not hurt me. What was it to the self-contempt that gnawed at my heart all these months? Tell you! Yes, I'll tell you. 
Your wife was ashamed of you. She never so much as told me she was married. She let me think anything I pleased sooner than that. She just come here and said, Nurse, take care of me, for I am mortal trouble. And don't let them know where I am, she said. And me being well married to an honest man and well to do here, I was able to do it by blessing. Why didn't you send for me before? It was a cry of anguish wrung from me. I'd never a sent for you. It was her doing. Oh, to think as God Almighty might men able to measure such like pecks of trouble for us women folk. Young man, I don't know what you did to make her leave you, but it must have been something cruel, for she loved the ground you walked on. She used to sit day after day looking at your picture and talking to it and kissing it when she thought I wasn't taking any notice and crying till she made me cry too. She used to cry all night. One day, when I tells her to pray to God to help her through her trouble, she outs with your putty face on a card she does, and she says, with her poor little smile, That's my God, nursey, she says. Don't, I said feebly, putting out my hands to keep off the torture. Not any more. Not now. Don't! she repeated. She had risen and was walking up and down the room with clasped hands. Don't indeed! No, I won't, but I shan't forget you. I tell you I've had you in my prayers time and again when I thought you'd make a light of love of my darling. I shan't drop you out at them. I know she was your own wedded wife as you chucked away when you were tired of her and left her to eat her heart out with longing for you. Oh, I pray to God above as to pay you Scott and Lot for all you've done to her. You killed my pretty. The price will be required of you, young man, even to the uttermost farthing. Oh, God in heaven, make him suffer. Make him feel it. She stamped her foot as she passed me by. I stood quite still. I bit my lip till I tasted the blood hot and salt on my tongue. She was nothing to you, cried the woman, walking faster up and down between the rush chairs and the table. Any fool can see with that half an eye. You didn't love her, so you don't feel nothing now, but some day you'll care for someone. And then you shall know what she felt, if there is any justice in heaven. I, too, rose, walked across the room, and leaned against the wall. I heard her words without understanding them. Can't you feel nothing? Are you stone? Come and look at her lying there so quiet. She don't fret after the likes of you no more. She won't sit no more looking out a window and saying nothing only dropping her tears one by one, slow on her lap. Come and see her. 
Come and see what you've done to my pretty, and then you can go. Nobody wants you here. She don't want you now. But perhaps you'd like to see her safe underground first. I'll be bound you'll put a big old slab to make sure she don't rise again. I turned on her. Her thin face was white with grief and impotent rage. Her claw-like hands were clenched. Woman, I said, have mercy. She paused and looked at me. Heh, she said. Have mercy, I said again. Mercy? You should have thought of that before. You hadn't no mercy on her. She loved you. She died loving you. And if I wasn't a Christian woman, I'd kill you for it like the rat you are. That I would, though I'd swing for it afterwards. I caught the woman's hands and held them fast in spite of her resistance. Don't you understand? I said savagely. We loved each other. She died loving me, and I have to live loving her. And it's her you pity? I tell you, it was all a mistake. A stupid, stupid mistake. Take me to her. For pity's sake, let me be left alone with her. She hesitated. Then she said in a voice only a shade less hard, Well, come along then. We moved towards the door. As she opened it, a faint, weak cry fell on my ear. My heart stood still. What's that? I asked, stopping on the threshold. Your child, she said shortly. That too? Oh, my love. Oh, my poor love. All those long months. She always said she'd send for you when she'd got over her trouble, the woman said as we climbed the stairs. I'd like him to see his little baby nurse, she says. Our little baby. It'll be all right when the baby's born, she says. I know he'll come to me then. You'll see. And I never said nothing, not thinking you'd come, not dreaming as you could be her husband and could stay away from her an hour as being as she was. <laughs> she drew a key from her pocket and fitted it in lock. She opened the door and I followed her in. It was a large, dark room full of old-fashioned furniture. There were wax candles and brass candlesticks and a smell of lavender. The big four-post bed was covered with white. My lamb, my poor little lamb, said the woman, beginning to cry for the first time as she drew back the sheet. Don't she look beautiful? I stood by the bedside. I looked down on my wife's face, just so I'd seen it lie on the pillow beside me in the early morning when the wind and the dawn came up from beyond the sea. She did not look like one dead. Her lips were still red, and it seemed to me that a tinge of color lay on her cheeks. It seemed to me, too, that if I kissed her, she would wake and put her slight hand on my neck and lay her cheek against mine. 
and that we should tell each other everything and weep together and understand and be comforted. So I stooped and laid my lips to hers as the old nurse stole from the room. But the red lips were like marble, and she did not wake. She will not wake now, ever, any more. I tell you again, there are some things that cannot be written. I lay that night in a big room filled with heavy dark furniture and a great four-poster hung with heavy dark curtains. A bed, the counterpart of the other bed, from whose side they had dragged me at last. They fed me, I believe, and the old nurse was kind to me. I think she saw now that it is not the dead who are to be pitied most. I lay at last in the big roomy bed and heard the household noises grow fewer and die out. The little wail of my child sounding latest. They had brought the child to me, and I had held it in my arms and bowed my head over its tiny face and frail fingers. I did not love it then. I told myself it had cost me her life. But my heart told me that it was I who had done that. The tall clock at the stairhead sounded the hours. Eleven, twelve, one, and still I could not sleep. The room was dark and very still. I had not been able to look at my life quietly. I had been full of the intoxication of grief. A real drunkenness, more merciful than the calm that comes after. Now I lay still as the dead woman in the next room and looked at what was left of my life. I lay still and thought and thought and thought, and in those hours I tasted the bitterness of death. It must have been about two that I first became aware of a slight sound that was not the ticking of the clock. I say first became aware, and yet I know perfectly that I had heard that sound more than once before, and had yet determined not to hear it, because it came from the next room, the room where the corpse lay. And I did not wish to hear that sound, because I knew it meant that I was nervous, miserably nervous, a coward and a brute. It meant that I, having killed my wife as surely as though I had put a knife in her breast, had now sunk so low as to be afraid of her dead body, the dead body that lay in the room next to mine. The heads of the bed were placed against the same wall, and from that wall I had fancied I heard a slight, slight, almost inaudible sound. So when I say that I became aware of them, I mean that at last I heard a sound so distinct as to leave no room for any doubt or question. It brought me to a sitting position in the bed, and the drops of sweat gathered heavily on my forehead and fell on my cold hands as I held my breath and listened. I don't know how long I sat there. There was no further sound and at last my tense muscles relaxed, and I fell back on the pillow. You fool, I said to myself. Dead or alive, is she not your darling, your heart's heart? Would you not go near to die of joy if she came to you? 
Pray God, let her spirit come back and tell you she forgives you. I wish she would come back, myself answered in words, while every fiber of my body and mind shrank and quivered in denial. I struck a match, lighted a candle, and breathed more freely as I looked at the polished furniture, the commonplace details of, of an ordinary room. Then I thought of her, lying alone, so near me, so quiet under the white sheet. She was dead. She would not wake or move. But suppose she did move. Suppose she turned back the sheet and got up and walked across the floor and turned the door handle. As I thought it, I heard, plainly, unmistakably heard, the door of the chamber of death open slowly. I heard slow steps in the passage, slow, heavy steps. I heard the touch of hands on my door outside, uncertain hands that felt for the latch. Sick with terror, I lay clenching the sheet in my hands. I knew well enough what would come in that door, that door on which my eyes were fixed. I dreaded to look, yet I dared not turn my eyes away. The door opened slowly, 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 and the figure of my dead wife came in. It came straight towards the bed and stood at the foot of the bed in white grave clothes with the white bandage under its chin. There was a scent of lavender. Its eyes were wide open and looked at me with love unspeakable. I could have shrieked aloud. My wife spoke. It was the same dear voice that I had loved so to hear. But it was very weak and faint now, and I trembled as I listened. You aren't afraid of me, darling, are you? Though I am dead? I heard all you said to me when you came, but I couldn't answer. But now I've come back from the dead to tell you. I wasn't really so bad as you thought me. Elvira had told me she loved Oscar. I only wrote the letter to make it easier for you. I was too proud to tell you when you were so angry. But I am not proud anymore. You'll love me again now, won't you? Now I'm dead. One always forgives dead people. The poor ghost's voice was hollow and faint. Abject terror paralyzed me. I could answer nothing. Say you forgive me, the thin, monotonous voice went on. Say you love me again. I had to speak. Coward as I was, I did manage to stammer. Yes, I love you. I have, I have always loved you. God help me. The sound of my own voice reassured me, and I ended more firmly than I had begun. The figure by the bed swayed a little unsteadily. I suppose, she said wearily, you would be afraid now I am dead if I came round you and kissed you. She made a movement as though she would have come to me. Then I did shriek aloud again and again and covered my face with the sheet 
and wound it around my head and body and held it with all my force. There was a moment of silence. Then I heard my door close, and then the sound of feet and voices, and I heard something heavy fall. I disentangled my head from the sheet. My room was empty. Then reason came back to me. I leapt from the bed. Ida, my darling, come back. I am not afraid. I love you. Come back. Come back. I sprang to my door and flung it open. Someone was bringing a light along the passage. On the floor, outside the door of death chamber, was a huddled heap. The corpse in its grave clothes. Dead. 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 She is buried in Melior churchyard and there is no stone over her. Now, whether it was catalepsy, as the doctor said, or whether my love came back even from the dead to me who loved her, I shall never know. But this I know, that, if I had held out my arms to her as she stood at my bedfoot, if I had said, Yes, even from the grave, my darling, from hell itself, come back, come back to me, if I had had room in my coward's heart for anything but the unreasoning terror that killed love in that hour, I should not now be here alone. I shrank from her. I feared her. I would not take her to my heart, and now she will not come to me any more. Why do I go on living? You see, there is the child. It is four years old now, and it has never spoken and never smiled. The End Thank you for listening to Marley's Ghosts with me, your ghostess, Deborah Marley. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Marley's Ghosts, or... Send me an email at Marley's Ghost Podcast at gmail dot com. I love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the show, visit my Patreon, where we have lots of tiers to choose from, each with their own special treats. Also rate and review so our community of dread time listeners can grow until next time my darlings sleep well